This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Health Agency has been working for years on right-sizing the military health system. What that means is moving some TRICARE beneficiaries away from military hospitals and clinics and into private providers. DHA had to rethink that plan after COVID hit, and now a new study says TRICARE patients might get worse care in the private world. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni talked about how DHA is responding with DHA's Assistant Director of Healthcare Administration, Dr. Brian Line. As part of the congressional direction going back all the way to 2017, um, Congress has directed uh, the Department of Defense to look at where do we need to have military medical treatment facilities, what capabilities need to be at which military medical treatment facilities, and, um, and how do we ensure uh, the care and quality is being provided to our beneficiaries, and how do we ensure the readiness of our active duty population as well as the readiness of the military medical members that have to deploy at a moment's notice in support of our nation. And so um, we did the initial study. Uh, The COVID uh, outbreak occurred, um, which then, uh, A, uh, markedly stressed both the managed care system but also the military health care system and caused us to go back and really take a look at what – what was required within the military treatment facilities, what was required within the military uh, to support our national objectives, um, and uh, also what's available in the civilian community uh, after, um, as a result of, of COVID. So what sort of things did you have to take into account with that after the pandemic happened? As you know, several hospitals across the United States closed their doors and lots of clinicians uh, shuttered their practices or went to fee-for-service only or closed closed up shop uh, during COVID and went completely virtual. And so the initial assessments of what was done, uh, both in terms of network quality and access, all had to be relooked, as well as a relook of what are the necessary forces within the military healthcare system to be able to respond. Uh, to pandemics such as this. And so we've, we've finished that report um, and submitted the draft report up to Congress uh, through, uh, through the Secretary of Defense. Um, and they've uh, asked uh, several follow-on questions um, that we are in the process of, uh, of answering. And so no decision has been made um, from, the, from that report. Uh, either within the Secretary of Defense's office or within Congress giving us the authority to move a, a, in any which way. So we're constantly relooking um, and ensuring that any of the assumptions or facts at that time uh, have changed. So at this point, it seems like the plan is on hold extensively until this plan is approved, even though you're still continuing to reevaluate things. The military is constantly looking at where uh, the best place is to assign their, the military members. So there's always shifting of military assets. Uh, so something that uh, perhaps wasn't there um, five years ago, now with the development of something like the Joint Strike Fighter and where they're positioning them, uh, changes our math that's got to get done. So um, we do have a base uh, kind of 
plan that we've uh, submitted, uh, but we're constantly looking at that to make sure that if and when they say go, we don't have to go back to the base plan and, and wait until uh, and, and have to modify it from there. Now, I realize this this plan's in draft, and you may not be able to say a ton about it, but you know the plan, uh, I believe, before COVID was to move about 1.9 million people, the TRICARE and using MHSs, over to the the, the private industry and, and community care. What is that looking like now at this point? If So the max that we were potentially looking at was up to 1.9 million. That was... The initial kind of, okay, if, if everything had to happen, it was 1.9 million. There, there is, uh, the, the current plan is nowhere near uh, that size of what it would be that we would be shifting uh, from some sort of uh, a military treatment facility based to a pure network-based care. So it is... Uh, probably uh, a, a small percentage of that, uh, probably less than uh, seven of our total military treatment facilities would be, 7%, I'm sorry, of our military treatment facilities within a potential of uh, something under uh, 200,000 or so non-active duty beneficiaries out of the total 9.6 million would we have to directly engage with a strategy to change uh, their primary care uh, or, in some cases, their specialty care access? Now, there's uh, recently been a study that came out, a a Defense Department and DHA-funded study, that basically said that the care that these people may get by going to network care could be less. They may not get the attention that they would get under a, a military health system. How are you taking that into account? What lessons are you learning from that? And- First and foremost, I want to really say that I'm very proud of the quality of the care that's being delivered within the military treatment facilities and within uh, the, our, uh, our what's called the direct care network. Uh, we've done a lot of work um, in multiple areas that was articulated in that paper about the quality of care that's delivered within uh, the the military treatment facilities. And and, and it was a good paper, and and it was scientifically valid. One of the things that I want everybody to understand, though, that that paper only looked at um, inpatient care. So it was only inpatient care, and it was a uh, modeling process with a total of 1.9 million beneficiaries. I I think that if we look at both inpatient and outpatient care, and we look at a much lower percentage that perhaps some of the findings in the paper may be um, less uh, valid than what was was reported in the paper. Um, That being said, uh, we do engage um, our managed care support contractors uh, on a monthly basis on quality and safety metrics uh, from the managed care uh, that is being provided out in our network. And uh, over the course of the last year, we have instituted uh, multiple formal meetings, not just with uh, the two large managed care support contractors, but uh, the U.S. Family Health Plan and some of our other uh, managed care team on uh, being part of a quality 
consortium across the military healthcare system where we've all agreed to uh, various metrics that we're going to look at and improve on as a military healthcare system. Um, so there's, there's a lot of initiatives uh, in place right now on making sure that we're focusing on, on quality and safety. And so the article was, it was a good article and it reemphasizes one of the key criteria that is required in 703. And that's not just looking at network access. In other words, does a doctor or does a clinic or does a hospital have the capability to see that patient? But also our requirement to ensure that the quality and safety that we expect out of the direct care system is also commensurate with the care that they're going to get in the in the through the managed care support team. That's Dr. Brian Line, the Defense Health Agency's Assistant Director of Healthcare Administration, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.